The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. How would you describe the perfect church? Some might say the messages need to be under 20 minutes and entertaining. (laughs) I guess that wouldn't work here, huh? Some would say the music has to suit my taste. They got to do the kind of music I like. Some say there has to be a good children's ministry. I don't want to mess with my kids while I'm there. Send them off somewhere and let you take care of them, okay? Some would say, well, the preacher has to teach what I think the Bible says. Others would say it has to be growing in numbers. If it's not growing, then there's a problem. Some would say they can't pressure me about giving. You know, that's, there's one we could actually fit into there. These things may be important to people today in this shallow society we live in, looking for a church so they can, I guess, salve their conscience maybe. But none of these things is why Paul boasts about the Thessalonian church. Now, the Thessalonian church wasn't perfect, because no church is, but it was close. I mean, it's the only church in the New Testament that Paul presents as an example to other churches. He's telling people, look at them. Look at these people and how they're living. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.7, he says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So they're an example to other believers. Second Thessalonians 1.4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. So Paul and the apostles are boasting about this church in Thessalonica. What was it that made this church an example to others that caused him to boast? Well, in one six he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So they're living lives imitating the Lord. I don't know how you can improve on that. I don't know how you get much better. We're imitating God in our lives. I mean, what higher compliment could he really have given them? In verse 8 he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so we need say nothing. So they're being talked about, their faith in God. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 4, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. Again, he's just thanking God for these people, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. So he's bragging because their faith is growing, it is strong, and he says the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So this is just a glowing evaluation from the Apostle Paul. This church was growing in faith, they're growing in love, which caused them to be imitators of God. That's something we're all called to do. 
Paul says in Ephesians 1, Be ye therefore imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Now what causes a church to grow in faith and love? How'd they get this way? And I guess we could ask, how do we increase our faith? I think there's two main factors which determine the strength of our faith. First one is our knowledge of God. And I think the main explanation of the troubles and the difficulties that most Christians experience in their lives is due to a lack of the knowledge of God, which is called theology proper. We need to study the revelation that God has given of Himself and of His character. That's how you develop a strong faith. And the more you know God, the more you'll be able to trust Him. I think we're all familiar with Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Now, grammatically here, the Word of Christ is an objective genitive and should be translated the Word about Christ. You can only have faith in God if you know Him. And you can only know Him through the Word of God. That's the only way you're going to come to know God. We need to study the Word of God so we know Him because it's hard to trust somebody you don't know. Let me just say this. It's dumb to trust somebody you don't know. And somehow I don't think we get that today. You're just supposed to trust everybody. Why? They have to have some reason to trust them. Look at Psalm 910. Those who know your name doesn't mean, oh, it's Yeshua, Yahweh. No, it's his name stands for character in the Hebrew. Those who know your character. How are you going to know God's character? By spending time in the Word of God and learning it. Those who know your character put their trust in you. Once you know God, you know you can trust Him. So that's the first one. You just, you've got to know God. Secondly, how are we going to grow our faith? I think is the application of what we know. You know, a knowledge that never ventures out upon what it knows will never be strong. You've got to step out in what you believe and live it. So this church in Thessalonica, it's an amazing church. And this morning we're going to start a verse-by-verse study of the second book of Thessalonians. And I think it's important to work systematically through books of Scripture. I just think that's the way God meant it. He didn't give us, you know, little... uh, You get them in Chinese uh, fortune cookie, okay? He didn't give us little fortune cookies. You pull it, oh, here's my verse for today. No, he wrote books that cover, you know, and and they're meant to be read together. They're meant to be put together. The different parts fit together, and you understand it when you look at the whole thing. Now, this book only has three chapters, so it ranks as one of the smallest epistles in the New Testament. I want to begin this morning with a quote from G.K. Beale from his commentary on 1 Thessalonians. He wrote the following. In order to understand any biblical book or ancient writing, one must discover as much as possible about the situation addressed and the historical context. Who wrote the work? To whom was it written? Where and when was it written? Why was it written? And for what occasion was it written? Answering these questions are difficult to discover for some biblical books, but when they are available, they generally provide crucial clues to solving interpretive problems. And I agree, and I think, you know, you want to learn all you can. So let's see this morning if we can answer some of these questions. I want to begin with some history 
on what's going on here. If you remember, on their second missionary journey, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they traveled through the Phrygian and Galatian territories. But if you remember, the Holy Spirit prevented them from continuing into the province of Asia. The Holy Spirit said, don't go there. Okay? And during the night at Troas, Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man imploring him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Troas is here. So Paul went to Macedonia at once. It would have been the first missionary effort into Europe. Paul and his missionary team founded a Christian community in Philippi, which is here. Then after being beaten and imprisoned, they fled the city and they made their way to Thessalonica, which is over here. Acts 17.1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So they leave Philippi, and it appears they just go right through Amphipolis, and that's about 30 miles down the coast, and then it seems they just pass through Apollonia, which is about 63 miles down the coast, and finally they end up at Thessalonica. That's about 100 miles from Philippi. Verse 2 says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the Sabbath day he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. What Scriptures was he reasoning with them from? The Tanakh, that's all there was, right? So he, you know, he's not going over the book of Galatians with them. It hadn't been written yet, okay? So he's using the Old Testament Scriptures, the Tanakh, to teach them. Now, it says that Paul was there on three Sabbath days. So <laughs> there's a lot of arguments about how long Paul was actually in Thessalonica. And you say, why? It says three Sabbath days. That'd be three weeks, right? Well, we really don't know for sure, Okay. Some people say, well, it has to have been longer than three weeks because he just taught them so much stuff. I mean, this church knew a lot of stuff. So he had, no, maybe they're quick learners, and maybe he just, that's all they did while he was there was just sit down and and study the Word of God together. But the expression three Sabbaths, the three could be used to indicate a complete ministry. In common use, two means a few, and three could convey a good many. Or it could mean three weeks. I like that, okay? I don't have a problem with Paul only being there three weeks, because remember, well, you're going to see in a minute, he sends Timothy back there after they leave. So why did they leave so soon? Why only three weeks, and then he takes off? This is an awesome church. You'd want to just stick around there, you know, put down roots and say, I like these people. They're excited about the Word of God. I'm just going to hang around. Acts 17.5. And the Jews were jealous. Man, these Jews are always causing problems, okay? And taking some wicked men of the rabble, They formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Verse 10 says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So a riot's coming up. They okay, we can't we gotta save Paul, we gotta get him out of here. So they sent him out. They told him, You gotta leave, Paul. It's you know, the city's in an uproar right now. Get out of here. So Paul continues his mission, and he goes to Berea. We're right there. We're right there. We're the Bereans, okay? There they are. And they're in Berea. It's not that far away. Um, But he's soon driven from Berea because the people from, uh, they followed him over there, and they just gave him more problems, all right? So he leaves Silas and Timothy there in Berea to work with the new Christians, and he travels down here to Athens, which is about 200 miles south. 
He gets to Athens. He sends word back to Berea for Silas and Timothy to meet him there. I need you guys to meet me here. Come on down. Acts 17, 14, and 15 tell us that. So when Silas and Timothy join him in Athens, he sends Timothy back. You know, why did... (laughs) I'd be like, Paul, I was right there. Why didn't you just send me a text and I could have went right over, okay, to Thessalonica instead of coming all the way down here. Now you send me all the way back up there. I mean, this is, you know, they don't have cars. They don't have planes. Okay, they're on a mule or they're on a horse or they're walking or by ship. It's, it's not an easy route, okay? Well, he sends Timothy back, and then Paul and Silas continue over to Corinth, which is over here. And then Timothy comes and rejoins them there, bringing word that the Thessalonian Christians were doing well, they're bravely enduring the persecution. And it was Timothy's message from Thessalonica that would lead Paul to write to them. And he writes the Thessalonian letters from Corinth. Now, Paul most likely wrote his first letter to Corinth around 80, 50, 51. That's probably the best date for that. Well, after hearing Timothy's report of their suffering, Paul became even more concerned about the community. So he writes a letter to commend them and to encourage them. So he sends Timothy back with the letter. He's he's back again, all right? And it's probably written, I don't know, they say six months to a year. I don't think it was... I don't think it was probably a whole year, maybe six months, he, he sends this letter back to them after he had left there. All right, so he left, he sends Timothy back, now he's sending a letter, he's just trying to encourage this church. When Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica with the letter, it seems that it just raised other questions in the church. You know, there were unresolved problems, they still, you know, had questions about things. So when Timothy gets back with Paul, he tells Paul, well, they have questions about this, and there's a problem with this. And so Paul wrote his second letter, probably just a few months after the first letter. Now, let's talk for a minute about the city of Thessalonica. And you can see there, it's a port city. It's on the Ignatian Way. It had a lot of traffic through this city. Thessalonica comes from the Greek word Nike, which means victory. It's a cosmopolitan metropolis similar to Corinth. It's inhabited by peoples from all over the known world. There were barbaric Germanic peoples there from the north who brought with them their pagan religion and culture. There were Greeks from Achaia to the south and from the islands of the Aegean Sea. They also brought their refinement, their philosophy. There were Romans from the west who were most likely retired soldiers, and they brought their wealth and their political power. And there were Jews who came in large numbers from the east, so eventually... They say about one-third of the population was Jewish. And these Jews brought with them their monotheistic faith and their national prejudices, okay? Their hatred for Gentiles came right with them as they came down here. The town was filled with businessmen, with travelers, with traders. They said the town was filled with sailors. It was a booming place, all right? A recently evacuated Roman forum unearthed a 400-seat indoor theater Indoor theater, 400 seats. A coin mint, a bath complex, 20 shops, and storage rooms likely for commerce. The pagan cult of Dionysius, who was the god of wine, was there. Uh, They worshipped the emperor, Augustine, and Julius Caesar. They were very popular in that city. So the church seems to have been comprised mostly of Gentiles. 
Now you say, how do we know that? Well, I think that is evidenced by the absence of allusions to the Tanakh in either of the epistles. I mean, if there was a large Jewish congregation there, he would have, you know, hinted more, referred more to their scriptures to prove what he's doing. Now, when he was in the synagogue there, when he was teaching, he used the Tanakh and writing to them, all right? He wanted them to know, because there were Jews there, and because he's in the synagogue, he uses the Tanakh. Uh, Acts 17 says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. And he's doing this from their scriptures, the Tanakh. And to rise from the dead and saying, This Yeshua, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So who is the them here? Well, it's the Jews of verse 1. Some of the Jews were persuaded from the Scriptures that Yeshua was, in fact, the Christ. They believed Paul's word. They put their faith in Yeshua. Not only Jews believe but the, the message, but also it says a great many of the devout Greeks. Now, these would have been Jewish proselytes. These would have been Gentiles who had come into Judaism. They're following the Judaism and all its ordinances. They're basically, that's why they're at the synagogue. And they're learning that. Okay, so these are, this is who he's reaching out to. This is who responds as they're preaching. And this forms the church. Now, the date, um, Thessalonians, they're some of the most certain dates involving any of Paul's letters. And it's recorded that while Paul was in Corinth, he was arrested and brought before Galileo, the proconsul of Achaia. So most people, most scholars date this. First and Second Thessalonians, around 80, 50, or 51. Now keep that in mind, because there's a lot of eschatology in here. And this is going on at 50, so we got 20 years before the end. And 20 years seems like a long time to me, you know. So, but they were acting like it was happening really quickly. All right, the author. We know it's Paul, and scholars today agree on that. But there are modern critics who seriously doubt Paul's authorship and they want to attack it here, which is, I think it's just ridiculous. They're, they're liberals, of course, they want to attack everything so they can say, well, it's, it doesn't count. It's not, Paul didn't write it. Why did he write it? What's the theme? What's the purpose of this? Well, J. Hampton Keithley III writes this. Second Thessalonians was evidently prompted by three main developments in the report Paul received most likely from Timothy. So Timothy takes a letter, he goes back to Paul, and there's where they get this idea from. Number one, to encourage them in the view of the report of the increasing persecution which they're facing. So they're suffering in this church, you know, for what they're believing. Secondly, to deal with the reports of a pseudo-Pauline letter and other misinterpretations of his teaching regarding the day of the Lord and the rapture of the church. We'll see that when we get to chapter 2. There was letters saying the day of the Lord had already happened. Okay, And thirdly, he says, to deal with the way some were responding to belief in the imminent return. Some thought the Lord's coming back soon, and so they quit their job. This belief was still being used as a basis for shrinking their vocational responsibilities. They're selling their houses. Okay, they're just going out and just, you know, waiting for the Lord. Going on a rooftop and waiting for the Lord to come back. No, we don't need to work. The Lord will be back anytime. Maybe they're running up their credit cards. Hey, the Lord's coming back. I ain't got to pay this, you know. 
But, but yeah. I, a lot of Christians have done that over the past because, you know, we have all these dates when the Lord's going to come back. So people feel, hey, if he's coming then, might as well run this credit card up. Might as well put all the debt on. I'm not going to be around to pay for it. And surprise, surprise. <laughs> They're still here paying for it. All right. So the persecutions of the new converts was continuing. Um, and it was, they had this doctrinal problem about the second coming that, you know, Paul needed to straighten out now. And again, there's some people there that, that just aren't working. So he's writing to kind of straighten these things out. Now, in my opinion, the, the largest theological contribution of First and Second Thessalonians is what they say about eschatology. All right? Over a quarter of First Thessalonians and nearly half of Second Thessalonians deal with problems and issues regarding the second coming of Christ. That's a lot of material. And we saw that. In the first book, at the end of every chapter, he deals with the second coming. Second Thessalonians develops the eschatological themes of First Thessalonians. And it's obvious that the Lord's return was prominent in Paul's mind and prominent in this church. Now, we could contrast First and Second Thessalonians by saying that Paul wrote the first epistle primary to comfort the Thessalonians, whereas he wrote the second epistle primarily to correct them all right there's some problems there let's try to straighten this out now second thessalonians 1 1 and 2 is a standard letter form for the first century all right then in verses 3 through 10 which is really just one long complicated sentence in the greek paul describes confidence in the believers and confidence in god's judgment of the unbelievers so with that as an introduction let's jump into the text here In verse 1, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. All right, the letter begins with the naming of the missionary team that's writing it. Now, I believe Paul wrote this, but these guys are with them, so it's not like they're taking turns writing things. Um, (laughs) They're part of a team. And whenever the team is mentioned, Paul is always first. He was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He's first called Paul in Acts 13.9. And it was probably most of the Jews in the diaspora had a Hebrew name and a Greek name. And this Greek name was Paulus, which means, anybody know? Little. Several theories have been advanced about the origin of the Greek name. There's a second century tradition that Paul was short, fat, bald, bow-legged, bushy-eyebrowed, and had protruding eyes. (laughs) And he comes from a source deriving from a a non-canonical book in Thessalonica called Paul and Thecla. And so I'm like, wow, they just flatter him to death, don't they? (laughs) This makes him sound like just this outstanding guy. So um, Paul wasn't there because, you know, he, he was just this, you know, great-looking guy, so they thought, hey, let's listen to this guy. No, he, I mean, they make it look pretty bad, all right? So we know he did have eye problems, but other than that, I don't know how much, if if any of this is true, but he was an awesome theologian, I know that, okay? I think we're all familiar with him. He wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. He was quite a man of God. And we have Silvanus. This is the Roman equivalent of Silas, which was his Jewish name. So he's called Silas in Acts, and Silvanus in the epistles. 
He's a Jewish Christian. He's a leading member of the church in Jerusalem. Paul sent him with Barnabas to the church at Antioch with the letter welcoming all Gentile converts after the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15. He was like Paul, a Roman citizen. He's a co-sender in both Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And he served as Peter's amanuensis or secretary, writing down Peter's words in 1 Peter to the church. Then we have Timothy. Timothy means one who honors God. He was a trusted companion of Paul. He's born in Lystra to a in Asia Minor. He's the son of a Jewish woman and a Greek father. He's a member of Paul's second missionary journey who helped found Christian communities in Macedonia and Greece. Timothy was also a companion on Paul's third missionary team and was a co-sender for six of Paul's letters. Paul would often send Timothy as his representative to deliver letters to community and to help settle disputes. Paul wrote two pastoral letters to Timothy while Timothy was in Ephesus, where he served as a pastor. Now, I think the greatest thing that Paul has to say about Timothy is found in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. He's, he's writing to Corinthians, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Why does he say that? Because he's following the Lord, so you follow me, okay? I'm following him, you follow, be imitators of me. And then he says, that's why I sent you Timothy. He said, follow me. Here's Timothy. What? (laughs) Timothy was a reproduction of Paul. Now, Paul couldn't be there, so he sent Timothy and he said, look, he's just like me. Follow him. In Luke 6.40, Yeshua said, when a disciple is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. So Timothy is just what a disciple should be. He's just like Paul. He was a model literally of what we all should be because we're called to pattern our lives after the Lord and Paul did that and so he says be imitators of me this really should be something we all could say parents to our kids to our neighbors people at work hey follow me imitate me if you see me do it it's good to do can we do that <laughs> uh it's we should be able to do that okay we're called to be imitators of the Lord And people are to see Christ in us, so we should be able to do that. Do you notice anything that's missing from Paul's greeting to this church that is present in a lot of his letters that he writes to the churches? Their letter at Rome, Galatia, Corinth, Ephesus, Colossae. What's missing here? Okay, very good. All right. Look at in Corinth, he says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Yeshua. Paul does not announce his apostolic authority in this greeting to Thessalonica. He does in Galatians, Paul announced that he wrote as an apostle and he vigorously defended his claim to apostolic authority. He also announced his apostolic role in the greetings of most of the other letters but he doesn't do it in Macedonia. We don't know why. Was he closer to these people? Or maybe they didn't question this. But he wrote First and Second Thessalonians and Philippi, all in Macedonia, never mentioned it there. So either they, you know, they were close and they had no question about this, and other areas were questioning his authority. He was being more forceful. In these letters, he's more encouraging them. 
you know, Philippians, he was obviously very close to them. Philippians is basically a thank you letter. Thanks. Thanks for taking care of me. Thanks for supporting me. All right. He says he's writing to the church. Now, the etymology of the Greek word here, ekklesia, it literally means called out ones. That's what we are. We are called out ones. All right. It's widely used to refer to various assemblies of people, both religious and secular. An ecclesia needs to be understood against the background of the Greek Septuagint, where the word repeatedly refers to the gathered congregation of Israel. So in light of that, the Thessalonian church was part of the true Israelite congregation of God's people who had been established by Messiah. Now, in the New Testament, it has a special reference to the one body of Christ that began on the day of Pentecost, consisting of born-again Jews and Gentiles. Now, in the New Testament, church can be used to describe all Christians everywhere, which is the universal church. Okay? Every Christian is a member of the church universal. It's also used to designate local churches in a city. All right? That's who he's writing to here. To the church. What church? The one in Thessalonica. All right? Now, <clears throat> I often get the question, and I think this to the church here answers the question, but the question is, what promises of God are for us now? I really think there's a lot of confusion in the church when it comes to this. All right? People don't know. I mean, they're reading their Bible and they're going, oh man, you know, you're reading through Leviticus and like, ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy's been reading Leviticus and the other day she, I come in and she goes, I'm, un, I'm unclean <laughs> or I'm impure or whatever. And I said, you're reading Leviticus? She says, yeah. I'm like, okay. You just you, you get everything you do in there. It's just you're going to become unclean, all right? So, and, and Christians get so confused. Are we allowed to have tattoos? Can we do this? Can we do that? Because, you know, the Bible says you can't. Well, first of all, you have to make a distinction between what God is saying to Israel and what He's saying to the church, all right? There's a difference. They're under the old covenant. We are not under that covenant. We are under the new covenant. We're under the law of Christ. That's a big difference there. But when you, if you ask this question to most Christians, what promises of God are for us now? What would they say? All of them. You ever heard the mantra, every promise in the book is mine? You ever heard that? No, they're not. They're not all yours, okay? And people think that because they don't understand hermeneutics. They don't understand audience relevance. Paul is writing this letter to the church, but particularly the church located in Thessalonica. He's not writing it to us. He's not writing to the church in Virginia Beach. We're reading somebody else's mail. So how do we know what applies to us and what doesn't? Well, I said earlier that in the New Testament, church can be used to describe all Christians everywhere, the universal church, or a local congregation which is usually designated by the city in which the believers live. Every believer is part of the universal church. Therefore, when reading a letter to a local church, we need to seek to understand what part of this is specifically to that local assembly and what is applicable to the church universal. He says the same thing to many of the churches because it's applicable to all believers. For example, look with me at Philippians 2.19. I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered 
by news of you. Is this specific to the local assembly or is it applicable to the universal church? Local. Why? What makes it local? Well, Timothy makes it local, right? We don't have any Timothys here. What else makes it local? Soon. This was written 2,000 years ago. I'm going to send Timothy soon. How many believers do you know that are waiting for Timothy to show up? Anybody? This is the same exact word he uses for the Yeshua is coming soon. But we don't look for Timothy, but we're still waiting for Yeshua. I'm not sure why, what the difference is there. Timothy is not coming to us shortly because he's dead. Okay? It's been 2,000 years since Paul wrote this. So the time indicator soon tells us it doesn't apply to us. All right? We're 2,000 years down the road. We're not soon. Now consider also these words of Paul to the Philippians. In 4, 2, and 3, he says, I entreat Yodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Does this apply to us? No. Yodia, Syntyche, they're dead. Clement is dead, okay? This was very specific to the local situation. He's addre- How would you like to have been sitting in that congregation when they read this? How would you like to have been Yodia or Syntyche? Hey, ladies, get together. Stop fighting, okay? Basically, what he's telling them, they're like, oh, man. <laughs> that would have been rough, all right? But no, it's specific to the local church at Thessalonica. Now, we might apply some things from this text. We might take the principle that Yahweh wants unity in the church. All right, we see that throughout the New Testament. What about Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does that apply to us? While Paul is clearly talking about himself here, okay, the principle also applies to us. Listen, let me make a... You know, this, this is one of those verses that you know, this is one of the fortune cookie verses, okay? The Christians pull this verse out and they, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, what's that mean? You know, because if we just take that verse and we, first of all, this doesn't apply to all Christians, okay? It applies to those who are abiding in Christ, those who are be living in dependence upon Christ, Most of the teaching that we find in the New Testament is directed to the church and applies to all Christians for all times, I believe. Now, this verse is usually, like I said, it's removed from its context. And, you know, we can just say, we can do all things. No matter what it is, I can do it. Well, can you leap tall buildings at a single bound? Can you run faster than a locomotive? No. Okay. We have to take this verse in context. Again, it's in a book. It didn't come as a fortune cookie. Let's look at the context of it. Paul says, not that, I'm speak, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Then he says, I can do all things. All what things? I can face need. I can live in abundance. I can do all this through him who strengthens me. 
That's the context there. You can, in other words, you can deal with any circumstance you face if you are living in dependence upon Christ, if you are abiding in Him. This is a spiritual truth that applies to all believers who are abiding in Christ. It's given to the church, and it's for us. We understand that there's things that don't apply to us that are time-specific, that are audience-specific. Now, let me just add here that there's some within full preterism who push the audience relevance principle, it's written to them, not to us, to a hyper-application. To a hyper-application that none of the Bible applies to us, none of the Bible is for us, it's for Israel and Israel only, and that's it, and they basically, the Bible's got nothing to say to us. That's how far some people push it. It's just history. It lacks any present-day application to any believer. That's it. It's done. Let me be clear that this full preterist does not believe the Bible is just history and lacks present-day application. I surely wouldn't be constantly encouraging you, nagging you to read the Scriptures if they weren't relevant. But I do believe the Bible was written to a certain audience. We're not that audience. So we have to first try to understand what it meant to them And then we can see, how do we apply it to us? You ever heard somebody say, talk about a verse and say, you know what this means to me? I always say, who cares? Who cares what it means to you? What does it mean to the people it was written to? That's where we have to start. Because people have these special verses that mean so much to them and they're totally out of context. Can you think of one maybe in Jeremiah somewhere? (laughs) I know the plans I have for you. So, so, from my perspective, unless I have strong reason not to, I apply the principles of the New Testament to believers because it's written to the church. I'm part of the church. Therefore, it's right, written to me unless it's something specifically local. For example, I think that 21st century American Christians are called to walk worthy of the Lord. I think we're called to be humble. I think God still resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think we're called to love one another. I think that we're still called to put others before ourselves. To me, these things apply to the church universal, and therefore they're timeless. But there's much in the New Testament that doesn't apply to us, because we're not living in the transition period. And when we understand the transition period, we're going to understand that we live in the age to come, that many of the transition period problems, they don't even apply to us. It's only when we know what time it is that we can know if the Bible's relevant to us or not. Now, we're not looking for things we already have or trying to hold on to things that are past. Because we know what time we're living in. All right, back to our text. That's the church. This is written to the church. You're the church. Some of these things apply. All right, now he refers to the church here as in God rather than of God. Now, that's unusual in Paul's writings. And we should probably understand it in the same way that Paul talks about being in Christ. That's a favorite designation of Paul. It means that we are identified completely with him. So you're in God. That's your union. That's your standing. 
Usually Paul will address the saints and churches in terms of where they live. Like he'll say, to the church of God that is in Corinth. But in the letters to the Thessalonians, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians that's in God. Why the difference? I think Paul's emphasizing the fact that this church, which happens to be in Thessalonica, is in union with God. Now, all churches are in union with God. But the church at Thessalonica was undergoing persecution. And they needed to be reminded of their sphere of protection and provision, which was from God. They're in union with the Creator of the universe. That's what he's stressing here. And then he says, God our Father. This phrase is one of the few differences between the introduction in 1 Thessalonians 1.1 and 2 Thessalonians 1. Believers can call God our Father. Matthew 6.9 Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In 1 Thessalonians, the greeting is simply in God the Father, but here it's God our Father. The former expression speaks of God as the Father of the Lord Yeshua, but the latter speaks of God as the Father of all who believe, which really emphasizes the biblical doctrine of adoption. The pronoun our here clearly focuses the Thessalonians on their relationship to God as their personal father who loved and cared for them as his children who had been born into his family through faith in Christ. With the increase of persecution, they needed this reminder. God is our Father. Let me tell you a little personal story here. When I was in the Navy, I was, at the time, memorizing the disciples' prayer here in Matthew 6. Just going over it, meditating on it, thinking about it. And I was sent uh, <clears throat> to do some joint ops with the Air Force, Biloxi, Mississippi. I learned I joined the wrong branch when I got there, and they had two men rooms and chow halls, and you can order whatever you want for dinner. I'm like, what in the world? I feel like I'm in a country club. So I, I check in the room, and there's an Air Force guy in the room. There's only two people in the room. I'm not used to that, you know. <clears throat> but the, my, the roommate, the guy I was put in the room with, had a porn collection. All right, I remember this just this over forty years ago. I remember it was about as clear as it was today because I remember thinking, "I wonder if porn is as bad as it used to be," you know, rationalizing. And so I went over to the table and I, you know, I was kind of keeping a distance because I didn't want to get zapped, you know. And I, and I start looking through this pornography magazine, and I'm just going for a few seconds, and I stopped and I closed the book, and I fell down on the bed and I was sobbing. And I wasn't afraid God was going to zap me. I wasn't thinking of God as a judge. I was grieving over the fact that I felt like I grieved, hurt my father. Because I've been focusing on this, my father, our father. And the relationship, you know, that God loves me. He's my father. And I felt like I had let him down and it just broke my heart. That's the thing we have to understand. He's our father. John says this, John 1, 12 and 13, But to all who did receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. <laughs> I'm a child of God. That's an amazing concept, people. 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The doctrine of the fatherhood of God is an amazing topic. And like I said, it's closely related to that of adoption. I don't understand it. I have never adopted anybody. I wasn't adopted. But it seems like people who are adopted somehow struggle with that, which is confusing to me because my parents just got what they got. Someone who's adopted gets picked out. They're chosen. That to me seems pretty special. Like I said, I've never been there, so I don't understand the struggles there, but I'm like, these parents picked you. Most parents just you get what you get, you don't throw a fit, right? Sinclair Ferguson, speaking about God and adoption, writes this, Sonship is a conventional concept. It binds men and women to his family as his children. That's right, we're children. We're children of God. So what is adoption? Well, James Packer has this to say about adoption. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers higher than justification because of the richer relationship with God it involves. So that's, that's pretty heavy there. He says higher than justification. Justification is the act of a judge, okay, declaring you just. But he's saying adoption is God just bringing you lovingly into the family. It's, it's very personal. God is the father of those who are justified by faith alone. And then he says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now, the grammatical structure here, you have one preposition, which is N in the Greek, and two objects. You have Father and Lord. And this is one of the ways the New Testament authors linked the Father and the Son together. And this construction would assert their equality and thereby Yeshua's deity. Another technique used by New Testament authors to theologically assert the deity of Christ was to attribute titles in the Tanakh and functions of Yahweh to Yeshua. Um, to call Yeshua Lord, for example, how it does he, he's called here. Focuses attention on who and what the Savior is to all who believe in Him. Lord is curios. Yeshua is Yahweh and the supreme creator and sustainer of the universe. John 1, 1 tells us that. Now, Kyrios in the Septuagint represents the Hebrew Yahweh of the Tanakh. So this shows us that Paul had taught these new believers from both Jewish and pagan backgrounds about the deity of Christ. What I find interesting is some people say, boy, at this early stage, he taught them about the deity. That would be step one. It's teaching who Yeshua is. You've got to understand, Yeshua is God. You can't believe in Him if you don't know who He is. So important. So in the short time that He's there, He grounded them in the doctrine of the Trinity. Including the deity of Yeshua. You destroy the Trinity, you destroy the deity. The Christian faith is decidedly Trinitarian. Now, don't tell me, oh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. I know that, okay? The concept is everywhere, all right? And I think one of the sure marks of a false cult is that it denies the Trinity. And I know there's plenty of preterists out there that want to, you know, because you become a preterist, you want to throw everything out and start over. You throw out some stuff that shouldn't be thrown out, okay? The Jews believed in a Trinity. 
prior to the first century. Okay? They understood these three powers in heaven. They understood that. There is one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And to attack the Trinity is to attack the deity of Christ. And whenever people say they don't believe in the deity of Christ, they don't believe Yeshua is God, I realize, not to be mean, but this is just frank, they either don't know God or don't know the Bible. That's it. I'm sorry. You don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Because the teaching of Christ's deity, first of all, it's fundamental. And it's everywhere in Scripture. It's just everywhere. But people don't see it. All right? Because they get confused and, you know, there's some things they don't understand. So because they don't understand it, it can't be true. Yeshua says this, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's a declaration of His deity. Do you see it? How's He declaring His deity there? He's quoting from Ezekiel. Okay? Let's go to Ezekiel 34.11. For thus says the Lord Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh's talking. Behold, I, I myself will search for the sheep and will seek them out. So God's going to come and seek and save his sheep. Look at Ezekiel 34, 15 and 16. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will seek the lost. So Yahweh is saying, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So Yahweh said in Ezekiel 34, I will seek the lost. Then Yeshua comes along and says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And by using this phrase, listen, knowing the people he was talking to knew Ezekiel. Alright, this is a this is a biblically literate crowd the Lord deals with. Okay, these people immerse themselves in the scripture. Now, people today is like, there's a book Ezekiel somewhere, you know? But they knew Ezekiel. They knew what he was doing. So by using that phrase, he is claiming to be Yahweh in the flesh. Israel's shepherd savior. David Fluser who was a devout Orthodox Jew. He was a professor of early Christianity and Judaism of the Second Temple period at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He said this. I love this quote from Fluser. He said, you poor Christians. <laughs> He's not a Christian. Okay, You poor Christians. He goes, you wonder why the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God more often. It says it all the time. You just don't understand Jewish thought. I mean, here's a Jew saying, it says that all the time in the Bible that Jesus is God. You just miss it, okay? Let me give you an example of what he means. Revelation 1.8. I'm Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Yeshua is saying here, I am from eternity to eternity. Now, I do not believe for a second that Yeshua said, I'm Alpha and Omega. He said, I'm Aleph and I'm Tav, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, not the Greek, all right? He's a Jew. He's speaking Hebrew. I'm Aleph, and I'm Tav, the first and the last, all right? If you go back to Isaiah, we read this in Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says Yahweh, 
the King of Israel, his Redeemer. Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then Yeshua comes along and says, I'm Aleph and Tav. And they, oh, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be Yahweh of hosts, the only living and true God. Very important for us to understand. And he, you know, John 8, Yeshua says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And I am there. He does, the text says, unless you believe that I am He. There's no He in the text. He's saying, I am. He's, that's a reference to ex, Exodus 3 in the Tetragrammaton. He's claiming to be Yahweh. Unless you believe that I am. That's what God said to Moses. I am who I am. Ehia, asher ehia. So Yeshua is saying that, unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I'm God, you'll die in your sins. Because there's no other, he, if he's not God, then he's a liar. And he can't help you. It's a very important issue, people. Very important. All right. <clears throat> Let's move on. Paul's telling the suffering Thessalonians that they're in union with God the Father, Yeshua and the Spirit. They're in union with the triune God. And Paul talks about the all-important place of the union with Christ so often in his writings. In 1 Corinthians 1, 29 and 30, he says this, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and and because of Him, now Him is God, because of Him, you are in Christ Yeshua. So notice here that it's God who creates this union. It's because of God that you're in Christ. Literally, it says, from Him you are in Christ Yeshua. He creates this union by His grace. It's embraced by faith. Now, notice the importance of this union with Christ. He said, if you are in Christ by God's doing, Christ becomes to you wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. All that Christ is for you, He is for you because you are in Him. Believers, we have been united to Christ And because we're united to Christ, we share all He is and has. We're part, we're in union. We have His righteousness. That's why we get into heaven. It's not because you did good, so we're going to let no. When I get to heaven, I can hold my head up and walk right through the gate if there's a gate there. (laughs) Because I deserve to be there. Because I have the righteousness of Christ. And if you don't have it, you got your own righteousness, which is self-righteousness, and you're damned, okay? Man, if, I think if believers really got a hold of who they are in Christ, it would make such a difference in, in how we live and how we think. You know, Christians worry about losing their salvation. Do you think Christ worries about getting kicked out of the Trinity? Well, then you have no chance. You're in Him. He's the one that got you into heaven. He's going to keep you there, okay? It's not anything you do on your own. Let's move on. Verse 2. We're getting somewhere. (laughs) Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. All right, this epistolatory salutation ends with a blessing. Grace to you and peace. In his greeting of grace and peace, Paul gives what Jewish Christians would have recognized as an echo of the ancient ironic blessing, which was really important to them. This comes from Numbers 6. It says this, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The ironic blessing, grace and peace. And that's what he's saying. Grace from, comes from the Greek word haris, which is a variation of the normal Greek greeting, which would be charon, meaning rejoice. The heart of the gospel is about grace. It's about God's unmerited favor extended to sinners. Because Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, God's holy justice is satisfied. Grace always precedes peace. Peace was the normal Hebrew greeting, shalom. We have peace because of God's grace. You'll never have peace without grace. Okay, it doesn't work that way. In Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now, Paul's addressing the believers, the family of God, and he says, since we have been justified. And the Greek here uses the aorist passive, having been justified. The aorist points to a past act by God, and it's a divine passive. In other words, God is declaring us righteous. And since we have been justified, indicates that God has already accomplished this work. He's writing the Christians at Rome. He says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. What does peace with God mean? It means the war is over. Okay? It means God's no longer our enemy. God's no longer promising judgment and death. Peace with God is the new status between God and the believer, which flows from the reconciliation accomplished by Christ. By virtue of Christ's death on the cross, it's impossible for men to be separated from God. We are a friend of God. We have peace with God. Peace is one of the fundamental characteristics of the Messianic kingdom, anticipated in the Tanakh and fulfilled in the New Testament. Biblically speaking, peace is always the product of knowing and appropriating grace. And the order can never be reversed. You ignore the grace of God, you forfeit the peace of God. The more we grasp and experience the grace of God, I think the more capacity we'll have to understand His peace, to be at peace. William Barclay wrote this. When Paul took and put together these two great words, grace and peace, haras and irene, he was doing something very wonderful. He was taking the normal greeting phrases of two great nations and molding them into one. So what he's saying here is that this is for Jew, this is for Gentile. He's molding them together when he says grace and peace. Then he says from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now, in the first letter, the apostle simply wrote, grace and peace to you. But now he adds, from God the Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Again, the view, in view of their needs, this strongly forces the readers to focus on the source of grace and peace. God is the ultimate source of both, and this is found in both persons of the Godhead mentioned in this passage. It's from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. He is the provider of grace and peace. Bricknell writes this, The Greek makes it plain that the Father and Christ are one source. It is remarkable that even at this early date, the Son is placed side by side with the Father as the fount of divine grace without any need of comment. I, I would have to disagree with it. That's remarkable. He says at this early date, Again, this is fundamental. This is one old Christianity 101, who Yeshua is. 
You don't become a Christian without understanding who he is. And so, yes, it was put out at the very beginning. Now, the church was very confused on this, and it wasn't until the 3rd century they were arguing about who Christ is. But in the beginning, this is 101. You've got to understand this, all right? So after his salutation in verse 1 and 2, Paul's first sentence from there goes from verse 3 to 10. Again, it's one long, complicated sentence in the Greek. And we'll get to that next week. Just the opening here. Grace and peace, I think it's just encouraging, you know, the way at the very beginning he lays out the deity of Christ. He lays out who they are in Christ. He just, there's so much in just a couple verses here. And then next week we're going to get into this idea that these people are being greatly persecuted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to look at your word. Lord, I thank you what you have provided for us, that we have the word of God, we can examine it. We have so many study aids, so many helps. We can dig in and learn the truth of your word. Father, give us a heart to be Bereans, to study the things that we see, to see if they're so, to to see if this is what the Bible teaches about these things. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, questions, comments. Um, this is from Bill Evans. Bill said, Martin Luther once commented that if he could gra- fully grasp the first two words of our Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer, our Father, he would have all the theology he would ever need. Uh, that is powerful, people. If you just understand, God is our Father. He is our Father, a loving, caring, wise Father who, who knows everything. You know, it's amazing. He knows us completely and loves us amazingly. (laughs) Loves us anyway, right? It is absolutely amazing. So the hyperchrist or whatever that believes the audience Romans excludes um, any reference to today. I mean, we're not part of the scripture has nothing to say to us. Yes, there is. Again, there's all variations of this, okay? In other words, you know, okay, they, audience relevance. So some will say, well, that's, you know, it, none of it applies to us. You know, it's just, and then you got a, a scale there, how far you go. Some say it, it just, the Bible is, doesn't, you can't get saved today. There's no church today. There's nothing today. It's all about Israel. That's the end. And I'm like, what's the point? What are you doing? Why are you, why are you even talking about it? Go away. Just go away, you know? But I just, you know, I don't think that's true at all. And I think it's a very weak position. And we've got plenty of messages out there on it, you know, dealing with that, you know, Israel-only doctrine that is nothing but false, you know? In the New Testament, it's restricted to those churches, the Christians at that time. It doesn't apply to that. The what? The New Testament. Yeah, to them it was only for Israel. No Gentiles either. Hmm. So again, there's variations of that. Some people don't take it that far, but yes, we have to understand audience relevance. That's an important principle. But you got to understand how it works, okay? When he's writing to the church, are you part of the church? Does it have to have your name in there for it to apply to you? 
when it's written to the church, now I can find, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not in the Thessalonian church and they have a certain problem and there's a time stamp on it. So I know, okay, that's not mine. But some of these principles are just how God wants us to live. All right? All right, Norm writes, David, I am absolutely feasting on this table you have provided by Father. The thing I love most about you isn't your intellect. That's good because I'm not that high on the cha- on the, <laughs> on the chart there. <laughs> though a contender indeed, it's not even your ability to teach, though extraordinary. It's your heart as a shepherd, just like His Majesty and your Father. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, Norm. That's a that's a huge compliment. I really appreciate that. I'm I guess I'm humbled by that. Uh, Sharon, your son says, tell mom to hurry up, and I love you. <laughs> yeah. John. <laughs> John, I'm going to talk extra long because of that. <laughs> Good morning, Dave and Church. Beautiful and very refreshing, Dave. There has There is not a single Sunday I have watched you that didn't say or te- that you didn't say or teach that I was reading or meditating on. Seriously amazing. Love you, brother. Gary from Gary and Chris from PA. Thanks, Gary. Chris, appreciate you guys watching. It's good to have you with us. All right, someone writes Superman 101. More powerful than a locomotive, faster than a speeding bullet. Charlie in the Texas Hill Country. Yep. That's we can do all things through Christ, you know. Again, that's so twisted and so distorted. And it, when you put it in context, it's even more meaningful, you know. It's basically I can deal with life because of Christ. That's the all things. Yeah. Thank you. Listening from Colorado Springs. We live in Santa Clara, California. Appreciate you joining with us this morning. It's good to have you. Please share your thoughts on observing the Sabbath on Sunday versus Saturday as written in the commandments, and does it apply due to Christ's return? Um, sure, okay. The Sabbath was a Jewish holiday, okay? A Jewish high feast. We're, we're not, the Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday was the Sabbath. It didn't get changed. It's still the Sabbath if you were under that, but the Sabbath is done away, okay? The Lord brought nine of the Ten Commandments into the New Testament and reiterated them. Okay, nine of them. Which one did He leave out? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Why didn't He bring that in? Because Christ is our Sabbath rest. When we trust Him, we are at rest. And we have the rest of God. So those Jewish holidays do not apply to us. We learn from them, we grow from them, but listen, we're not bound by that. Okay? That Sabbath commandment was for Israel. All right? We are not under that. We can worship any day we want. We don't have to worship on Sunday. Why do we? That's just a tradition. We can worship Saturday, Monday, Tuesday. We can worship any day we want corporately. Hopefully, you worship every day anyway. Okay? Because you're really. Why Sunday? I mean, why, why is it a tradition? I may be what they're asking. Uh, why? How it got to be a tradition? Because I guess the Lord rose on a Sunday, so they're saying, okay, the resurrection day, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. We get together. But again... People don't work on Sunday. It also says they don't work on the first day of the weekend house and stuff, so there's some 
pieces. Yeah, there's some there's some biblical stuff of them meeting on the first day of the week and stuff. But again, this is not this is not a mandate. We're not under the Sabbath law. And if, I mean, if you think you're under the Sabbath, you better go back and realize what the Sabbath involved. Okay, because you don't do jack. Okay, you pick up sticks on the Sabbath. What happens? Dead. You're dead. You're dead. The Jews got to the point. They, of course, the Jews blew everything out of proportion. They built fences around it. The law says you can't do this, so let's build some fences so we make sure we don't do that. They got to the point that when you were in a chair and you stood up and the chair, you pushed the chair and it made furrows in the dirt, you were working on the Sabbath. Plowing. Plowing. <laughs> so you better be really careful, okay? I mean, it's just what people have done to Scripture and with truth is just, it's crazy. Thanks from Helena, Montana. You're welcome, Helena. Thanks for joining us. The volunteer workers at Planned Parenthood wear a vest that reads, I am the face of pro-choice. There are a lot of churches that are aligned with this very large abortion provider. Yeah, that's really sad. Most pastors of the churches must not realize that they're blaspheming God in this age. Maloney. Yeah, John. Thanks, John. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, there's people just... Let me bring this up since I've been asked a lot of questions about it. This revival, so to speak, that's going on. You know, where's it at? As yeah, someone. It's at a college, you know, and and they're talking. Everyone's talking. Oh, there's a great revival going on. Oh, you know. Well, you know, here's what a lot of the. It's a basically they're just singing and praising and having a music fest, okay? And it's a high emotional peak. Some of the people leading these things are homosexuals. Okay, so here, if it's a revival, and you're a homosexual, you're on your face before God repenting, not leading music, okay? Well, they must be part of the college. I read a thing from one of the right. heads that said nobody can just come in here and preach. Right. It has to be something. Oh, yeah, they are from the college. I mean, oh, okay. I mean, <clears throat> I know it's hard to believe there'd be homosexuals at a college. So, Christian college. <laughs> I, that doesn't. No, you can put Christian on it, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't do a whole lot because today homosexuality is embraced. Okay, the Bible calls it an abomination. We call it, hey, that's the favored thing to be. Okay, you're highly favored if you're in that class of people. Yeah, it's just it's sad. Okay. P.S. You open up things for a better understanding through the Holy Spirit. You have a very strong heart for the Lord. And for teaching, thank you. This is not supposed to be a praise session for me. It's supposed to be a question. And I appreciate your comments. I really do. But I just, I get a little embarrassed, you know, by, I don't want to talk, I don't want to talk about me. <laughs> Let's talk about Yeshua. You know, I'll tell you, you ever heard the Christian song, I don't want to leave a legacy? I cry every time. I, I want that song at my funeral. I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. But in my case, it would be Yeshua. <laughs> okay? Only Yeshua. I consider myself at this point a partial preterist. Okay, I would consider that a futurist. But okay, that's okay. You're partially there, I guess. I see without doubt um, how the events of Matthew 24 have been fulfilled. I'm just so confused after that. For example, the new heaven and earth, I've heard you explain it at different times through your messages, but can you recommend a path for me to understand full preterism for a layman? 
Yeah, I would go to our website. I have tons and tons of messages on there. We have the text of the message. We have videos. We have audio. You can listen to these things. And Okay, yeah, uh, I would recommend Glenn Hill's book, um, Pete and Rue's book. What, what's the Rue's book title, do you remember? Why Are We Still Waiting? Why are we still waiting or, is that what it is? I don't even remember what the title is, but the, it, those are good books. But we got a ton of material on there. The thing you have to understand is the new heaven and new earth is synonymous with the new covenant. They're the same thing. We're in the new heavens and new earth. It has nothing to do with the heavens up there and the dirt below us. That's not what it's talking about. We are in the new covenant. Everything the Lord promised has been fulfilled and we're living in the age to come. What the Bible talked about, the age to come, we're living in that age right now, enjoying the benefits of that. So I would just go to our website and listen, there's a, there's a search engine on our website and it is fantastic. I use it every week because I'm like, what did I say? And I searched and I find out what I said. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I agree with that. No. <laughs> you know, but there's a lot. You can find anything you want. Just go to the search engine, type in your subject. If it's a, if it's a, you know, a sentence, put it in uh, parentheses and boom, you get it. Okay. Thank you, David, Kathy, and Brian. You've been a blessing in our life since 97. Thank you, Hofer. It's a, you've been a blessing in our life also. It's just 97. Am I that old? We've been around that long? Stan, you got a question? No, i got a comment. Comment. Yeah. Um, my wife was showing me her youngest sister is due next month, and she had a sonogram and a picture of a perfect baby. And it just amazes me that, well, the Democrats in the House are all evil. Because they allowed a woman to murder the baby up to birth and after birth. After birth, yeah. Well, the only thing I would say to them, if they believe in late-term abortion, I want to know how late, because can we kill them? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it too late for them? How old Pelosi? How late can we get? Yeah, how late-term? I mean, it is just sad. I mean, Caitlin had, I don't know what those pictures were that you got. They're, some, they're not your normal. 3D. They're 3D. And I mean, it's like you're looking at this baby, and you're like, this is a person, yep. not a tumor. Not, you know, some unwanted blob. This is a baby. But our society is so cold. It's all so about us. Okay. My body, my choice. Uh, yeah, my body, my choice. But that, that quit working when, they, uh, when the vaccine came.